0: Hi there, welcome to our podcast, Paradoxify. I am Ann McFarland, author, screenwriter, and mother of five. I'm here with my co-host and husband, Dr. Tim McFarland. Together, we like to talk about the unexpected.
1: That's right, and specifically, we want to talk with our guest about unexpected stories in STEM and faith. STEM, of course, being an acronym for the words science, technology, engineering, and math. And that's our goal, to deliver the unexpected. Also, in every episode, we will start with a riddle or question, and listeners can try to solve it. We will give them the answer by the end of the episode.
0: Great. Let's get started. Today, we're doing another medical topic. We're talking about the curious nature and development of anesthesia. My husband, Dr. Tim McFarland, and I will be questioning our guest and daughter-in-law nurse anesthetist, Allison McFarland, about her work and knowledge of anesthesia. Allison, welcome to our show. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here and getting to talk with you guys today. Well, we're excited. Before we jump off into our topic, we always give our listeners a burning question or riddle that we answer later in the show. The best way to solve this is to think outside of the box. So here's the scenario. After a traumatic experience, James opened his eyes in the hospital. He did not know who he was or what his name was. People calling themselves his family were there, but he did not recognize any of them. Things were never the same for him, but he adjusted to his new life. He never remembered his life from before and never talked about it. So what had happened? And here's a clue. James wasn't in an accident. He didn't suffer an injury and did not have amnesia. I'll tell you the answer later, but for now, I'd like to give Allison the chance to tell us about her training and job. What does it take to become a nurse anesthetist? Did you always know you wanted to do this? So
2: I'll start with the last question. I didn't always know that I wanted to do this. I think my earliest thing I wanted to do was be a ballerina. So <laughs> it took some time to realize that was not what was for me. But my training, I started off at UT in Austin, University of Texas, and studied to become a nurse. So I got my bachelor's um, of science and nursing there at UT. And then I worked for a while. I worked in the neonatal ICU. So I worked with little babies, premature babies, um, primarily for my work as a nurse. And then I started to think about what I'd like to go back and specialize in, and I shadowed different areas of mid-level nurse practitioner type roles. And I really liked the role of the nurse anesthetist, or the CRNA, which stands for Certified Registered Nurse Anesthetist. So I thought about that option and started applying to programs, and I applied to um, Texas Christian University in Fort Worth. They have a program there for nurse anesthesia, and got accepted and went there. And so their program was three years of studying, um, about a year and a half in the classroom, and then a year and a half in the clinical setting, um, getting the hands-on work. And I graduated with a doctorate of nursing practice um, with a specialty in nurse anesthesia.
1: And I think you mentioned that you did some time as a nurse in the neonatal ICU? Because you have to have some time in specialized nursing, don't you?
2: Yes. So for the particular specialty of nurse anesthesia, most programs require a minimum of a year in an ICU setting. So either adult, pediatric, or, or neonatal ICU. And most programs prefer adults because that's primarily what we work with in um, the nurse anesthesia
1: role. So it gives you intensive care, dealing one-on-one or one-on-two.
2: Right, yeah. That intensive care background kind of gives you the experience of handling a patient on a ventilator, um, patients with vasoactive drips, um, and just managing a critical care patient, which is very similar to what we're doing in the operating room.
1: So not just two years of, oh, I worked as a nurse.
2: Right. Kind of a specialty ICU experience is what they want for the path of becoming a nurse nurse anesthesia. So you specialist. had quite the commitment to go to school to get all that done. <laughs> it was definitely an, an investment of time, that's for sure. That's,
0: that's amazing.
1: So tell us, what's a typical workday look like for you now?
2: So it starts pretty early. I get to the hospital typically between six and 630. And the first thing I do is interview my patients. I ask them about their health history and explain what the plan is for anesthesia. And then I go to the operating room and set up my equipment for medications and um, managing their airway. Once the surgeon arrives, we go back to the operating room with the patient. I put them to sleep. In in our group, uh, I work alongside anesthesiologists. And so we work in a team uh, setting. So I radio my anesthesiologist to come back to the room, let them know we're ready to go to sleep. We put the patient to sleep. Typically we place a breathing tube or some sort of airway support. I keep them asleep during the surgery and maintain their, their vital signs, their blood pressure, give them medicines. And then at the end of the surgery, I start to wake the patient up and we head to the recovery area. And um, I give a report to the nurse in recovery so they, they can assume the care of that patient. And then we basically go on repeat with bringing patients back for surgery.
0: So it'd be a long day or you start early and you kind of finish early or it just depends?
2: kind of variable. My schedule is um, typically an eight-hour day, but sometimes we'll do 10 or 12-hour shift, depending on what your assignment is for that week. The flow of the day can be highly variable. We can have a lot of downtime in our day if there's um, not surgery scheduled back-to-back, or we can have back to back to back surgeries. Um, I had a day last week where we did 14, um, wisdom teeth extractions and I was only in one operating room and another team was in another. So I personally did seven. Um, but it was back to back to back taking wisdom teeth out of
0: teenagers. Okay. Well, for those listening who are are thinking through what they want to do or where they want to go with their schooling, would you say that these types of jobs, the, the kind that you've been doing are readily available everywhere? And is the pay good? Is there some kind of criteria about where you have to live in relation to your work setting?
2: So for me personally, when I was looking for a job, the place where we were living didn't have openings available for everyone that was applying there. We were living in Alaska at the time and about a 10 operating room facility is where we were working and three of us were all graduating at the same time. So they didn't have enough openings or positions for, for me to stay there. But if you were looking at any other big city across the nation, there were positions available. You just had to find somewhere that was in a you know, place with a growing population and a large uh, volume of people. And then there are positions available in rural areas, but they're more... Um, limited because there are less people having surgeries in those areas. So you just kind of have to, if you want to work in a rural setting, look for that opportunity and, and maybe p- wait until a position were to become available. As far as the pay, it is one of the higher paying mid-level nurse practitioner roles. And, um, I think that probably goes along with the risk and responsibility that we carry. And I that's appreciate considerable, getting yeah. <laughs> compensated for, but it also is, is a big responsibility that I'm taking and take that very seriously. Um, and then as far as where you live compared to where you're working, we do have to take call at my job and you do have to be within 30 minutes of the hospital. Um, if you get called in to work for emergency surgeries.
0: Okay. So kind of familiar with the, the requirements sometime for living near the work site if you're in the medical profession when you're on call like that.
1: I'm in a small town and we don't even have an anesthesiologist. We just have two nurse anesthetists. So you, you mentioned the responsibility and even if you have someone in the building, you're managing the moment by moment anesthesia for that patient. And So it's a high, high level of stress and a high level of medical knowledge and care.
2: Especially in the minute-to-minute, like you said, um, setting, sometimes you don't have the time to wait to to call for backup or to to ask for help, and you need to be able to act right away. And so I, I do have the responsibility and the training to take care of patients in an emergency setting. Their airway changes or becomes compromised if they have You know, surgical bleeding that requires um, volume resuscitation as far as IV fluids or blood products. Um, We are trained and able to administer those things.
0: So let's take a step back now and talk about the history of anesthesia. Tell us what you know about the early days of surgery and the use of anesthesia
2: you know, surgeries were going on long before modern anesthesia. There were surgeries that went on with no anesthesia at all. Um, some of the earliest surgeries that were documented were mastectomies, people who had breast cancer, and uh, mastectomy is the process of removing the the complete breast tissue. So I actually read about a woman who recounted this uh, no anesthesia process of having her portion of her breast cut off. This was during the time of Nero's army. Oh my goodness. And she said that nine people held her down for the surgery. Oh. She's talked about the knife as it pierced the skin and just the the searing pain that it caused. And and then it talked about two after that that she had some level of probably post-traumatic stress. Um, And any time she was in a situation that reminded her of that, she would have emotional trauma. Oh, wow. So surgeries happened, and uh, they had to happen, but they didn't always have anesthesia. And so as people were desiring more relief from that type of scenario, people would uh, come up with plants and roots and experiment with things. And early on, people would use things like the mandrake root as an anesthetic. And then later, some of the other things that started to go on the track of modern anesthesia were the development of nitrous oxide, which is um, two nitrogen molecules and an oxygen molecule. And it was an inhaled gas. I read that people were experimenting with inhaled gases. It was a social elite thing to uh, have a dinner party and then have people over and have them try oh. your inhaled gases oh my. Um, <laughs> and feel the effects of them. Oh and goodness. so that was partly how it became popular and discovered. And nitrous oxide was something that was kind of used early in, in dental field, dental extractions and that sort of thing. And then later, one of the things that became a more complete anesthetic that was able to be used for surgery was the ether mm-hmm. gas. Some people may remember or have heard of ether gas. That was one of the early experimental anesthetics. And then from there, other anesthetics were developed and improved upon to the what we consider modern anesthesia gases and, and medications through the IV and other more modern developments. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Well, anesthesia certainly makes our surgical experience completely different, a lot better than Biting a bullet or.
0: Having nine people hold you down. Yeah, or Uh. whiskey. It's a gift of mercy.
1: I understood that cocaine was used early on.
2: Mm-hmm, that's right, yeah. Cocaine was also an early anesthetic. The mandrake I described, there was you know, a cocktail that they would combine different things that were sedatives and, and for pain and do what they could to put people to sleep and ease their pain of surgery. And sure. I
1: think morphine was available during the Civil War.
2: Uh, one of the things that propelled morphine into use was the development of the hypodermic needle. So having a needle that could inject into a vein... Um, morphine was something that was given intravenously, so through the vein. So we had to develop a needle that could go into a vein to develop IV medications. So okay. it's kind of interesting, the process.
1: Who was actually the first public or collected credit given to for anesthesia use in this country? And was the discovery of anesthesia kind of an accidental one, sort of what we would call outside of the box or a paradox? Uh, event that, oh, wow, this actually did this pretty well.
2: Ether pretty much got the label as the the first anesthetic. And so the name associated with Ether is is Morton. Um, He was one of the early people. And what I know about Morton is he was actually a dentist. He had actually developed full mouth dentures that were what he was trying to give people who had poor dentition, poor teeth. Unfortunately for his dentures, you had to extract all of the remaining teeth. And it was a prohibitively painful process. He tried different things to allow his dentures to be implanted. And he actually consulted with chemist friend of his who recommended try ether. I could be something that would work for this. And he tried it on himself and on some pet animals of his and said, Hey, this, this stuff works. (laughs) (laughs) I need to do a a display. And so he went in front of Massachusetts general surgical operating theater and uh, had his anesthetic and and the person that, that they were going to do anesthesia on with ether was going to have a leg amputation. And that guy said, no, I don't want your anesthesia. Can you get that away from me? I'm, I'm ad living here. But <laughs> he didn't want, he refused the the experimental ether anesthesia. So ultimately, it was a medical student who volunteered himself to have a wisdom tooth extracted. So ether was used to extract um, a young man's wisdom tooth in that setting. And it was, all, hey, this is effective. Let's start using it.
0: They might have notified that man before he got into the theater to say, "Hey, this is what we're going to do."
1: <laughs> Seems crazy to think about, but I assume they weren't really closely monitoring their blood pressure or vital signs. They're, they didn't have pulse socks or anything that we use now,
2: right? Yeah, I mean, they, they could monitor a patient with their eyes, is what they had. They um, wow. didn't have the blood pressure monitors that we have now, but you could you could feel a pulse. You know, a lot of it goes back to. Some of the basic skills I learned as a nurse, like feeling on someone's arm or their neck for their pulse. Do they have a beating heart? Um, watching their breathing, is their chest rising and falling? What's the color of their skin? Is their skin pink or are they turning blue? They, they didn't, didn't intubate them. No. So the, the early ether administration, they had a, a ball with a mouthpiece that they put the gas in and they instructed the patient to breathe through the mouthpiece and inhale this gas that didn't really smell very good until they closed their eyes and went to oh, sleep. Oh, wow. And then they operate on them until they woke
0: up. Oh, my. Well, we're so grateful we live today. I know we've had a long year here, but uh, grateful for the anesthesia that we have. Can you tell us about some of the mechanisms of anesthesia? I don't know if that's the right word, but uh, is the sleep of anesthesia similar to natural sleep?
2: Anesthesia
0: has similarities, for sure,
2: to natural sleep. It appears to be natural, right, to the person who's outside and observing. One of the main obvious differences is compared to natural sleep, under anesthesia, people are having surgeries. Because so, if I was
1: asleep and you poked me with something sharp or tried to cut me, I'm going to wake up.
2: wake up, correct. Yeah. And, and, it, and if the patient wakes up when the surgeon pokes them with an instrument, I'm in trouble what we do is we give medications to maintain a patient in a state of unconsciousness. And so we, we use the term sleeping, but um, a more medically correct term would be unconsciousness. So you're not aware of what's going on and you're not going to form memories of this event. But people who are still sleeping can, can have a purposeful or a semi-purposeful motor responses. They can lift an arm if they're not giving something. In a gentle term, we use the word muscle relaxant, but it's technically a paralytic. We give uh, medications, that make patients not move to allow the surgeon to be able to operate on them. So that would be a difference compared to your natural sleep. But one interesting thing, one of our primary drugs we use for inducing anesthesia is called propofol. And it actually does um, replicate, they they put monitors on people's brains and monitored them when propofol was being administered. And some of the brain waves that go on during propofol administration are similar to the states that you would see in natural sleep. So... You know REM sleep is a restorative process, and that's not occurring when propofol is being administered that we know of, but there are some similar waveforms, delta waves that go on um, that you would see in natural sleep, which is interesting to me because just anecdotally, when I give someone just propofol as an anesthetic and they're waking up, a lot of people say, "I feel so refreshed or that was wow. a great nap." Wow. And so sometimes when people tell me that now, I tell them, "Well, you know, actually you know yeah. while you were sleeping, your brain was having some processes go on that go on in natural sleep. So that's probably why you oh, feel a little bit more refreshed.
1: Yeah. Isn't that what Michael Jackson was given?
2: Yes. Yeah, so a lot of people also ask me that question when I tell them that they're getting propofol. Oh, was that what Michael Jackson had? Um, and yes, that is the Michael Jackson drug. He was using that off-label as a sleep aid being administered by a doctor at his home, which is not an on-label use of propofol. I w- always tell people also, some people when they say they have such a good nap, um, say, oh, can I have some of that to go home with me? I need that to help <laughs> me sleep. And I tell them, no, that's how Michael Jackson got in trouble. You know, if you, if you were to take this medication home, I'd have to go home with you. And
0: we're not going to do that today. Uh, it's hard. Some people that really struggle with sleeping at night, you know, I know they just wish there was something that would get them there regularly.
1: And I think you mentioned there's almost two classes of medicines that you generally use. You use one to put people to sleep, I think would be the phrase, but then another to paralyze them.
2: So our primary anesthetics are considered our drugs that induce a state of unconsciousness or amnesia. Muscle relaxants would be another category that we use as an an adjunct as the surgery or the surgeon um, requires. And then there are other classes that we give as well. We give medications for pain, both opioid and non-opioid based medications for pain. Other classes we give would be anti emetic a side effect of a lot of our anesthesia agents is nausea and vomiting. So we give medicines that help prevent the nausea and vomiting. We give other adjuncts kind of multimodal stuff to reduce the amount of opiate narcotics pains that we need to give patients. So there's a, an array of medications
1: that we So when you put somebody to sleep, do you also have to give them something for pain? Do they feel pain?
2: Yeah. So interestingly, in an unconscious person, you can still, the signs that we can tell from anesthesia that the patient is under pain would be some of the physiologic responses to pain, which would be an increased heart rate, increased breathing rate if they're initiating their own breath and I'm not breathing for them with a mechanical ventilator. And so I use those indicators of increased heart rate, also increased blood pressure, and increased respiratory rate to know that the patient is experiencing pain. You can also look over the drapes and see what the surgeon's doing and see, yeah, that looks painful. (laughs) Um, But yeah, the physiologic mechanisms are are something that alerts me to a patient being in pain, and I give medications that are separate from our anesthesia maintenance agents or induction agents for pain.
1: Some people have this fear that you hear people undergoing anesthesia, and they're paralyzed, it seems, and they can't move, they can't indicate but they're awake and they're trying to communicate. What's happening?
2: A patient could be paralyzed but not getting an anesthetic drug that's causing them to be unconscious or amnestic.
1: So that's two different families of medications. So you're talking about you want to put them to sleep and paralyze, but you always want to put them to sleep first.
2: Right. So we have a sequence of our medicines that we give to put someone to sleep when we're starting surgery. And typically I give the the pain medicine first because it takes about you know, anywhere from one to three, five minutes to have its peak effect. So I like to give that a few minutes before I give my other medicines. So I give something for pain first, and then typically next I'll give lidocaine, which has a couple effects. But one of the reasons I give it next is because it can have an effect of numbing the the vein. Because the medication to follow that would be your induction agent, propofol, typically, and that's going to be the one that puts them to sleep. And then once they are asleep, we check to make sure the patient's asleep. I'll talk to the patient sometimes and say, "How are you doing?" And if they don't respond, then I rub my finger across their eyelashes and the lack of a lash response meaning their eye does not twitch when I rub my finger along their eyelashes means they're deeply anesthetized, they're asleep and after that point is when we push the muscle relaxant. So there's an order of events there. You wouldn't want to push the muscle relaxant first when someone's still awake because they will remember the feeling of being paralyzed and not being asleep.
0: Well that's really interesting there's a lot that goes into it and we just, when you're on the other end, the patient we just know that they say count backwards, and then you know you don't remember until you wake up. Speaking of waking up, is that hard or easy to do? Is that the body doing at that time? Is that just the drug wearing off? Or
2: right. So for general anesthesia, the thing that we're using to keep people asleep are anesthesia gases. One of the primary ones is sevoflurane, and so during the surgery, I have a dial set to an amount, and um, the patient is breathing this gas typically through a breathing tube or a an airway, So the gas is what's maintaining them being asleep. Hmm. When the surgery is over, I turn off the gas and the patient, the way that they wake up is by breathing out that gas. Okay. So the gas is no longer being administered and it naturally comes out of the body. Um, oh, okay. the patient breathes it. I, I watch on monitors the level of gas that's entering the patient and leaving the patient. And when the end titles, end title, meaning, um, the amount of gas coming out at the end of a breath, when that level gets to be around the the number that I see is zero point four um, of sevofluorine, the patients typically start to wake up. They'll respond to their name. They'll start to open their eyes when you ask them to, mm-hmm. and they wake up by breathing off the gas. So that
0: mm-hmm. it
1: comes so do you out give them the lungs. reversing agents?
2: Reversing agents are something that we use for the muscle relaxant. So the muscle relaxant does require a reversal agent. It it can also wear off over time. So in a surgery that is going over many hours, if I've given a muscle relaxant at the beginning of the surgery and then not for several hours, it doesn't always need a reversal. But if you've been giving repeated doses of the muscle relaxant, you want someone to have their full muscular strength back when they wake up so they don't feel weak. Um, when they're waking up from surgery. And so I will give a reversal for the muscle relaxant. And then other reversal agents that we have are to reverse the pain medicine. So some people may have heard of you know the opioid, opioid or um, pain medicines. A reversal for that is Narcan. Um, so that's a medicine I can give to reverse that. Um, I've only actually had to give Narcan to a patient in the operating room once, and it was somewhat recently. Mm. Um, so if, if the, at the end of the surgery, if the patient's not breathing and all of the other anesthesia pieces are off, sometimes they can have received too much pain medicine that will inhibit them from taking a breath. And mm-hmm. so the Narcan can reverse um, the opioid-based pain medication to allow them to return breathing. And then there are also reversal agents for our benzodiazepines. Flumazenil um, is another agent you can use to reverse your benzodiazepines if somebody has um, too much of those, which those are used for um, making someone relax before surgery.
1: I've heard one concern from anesthesia is you do use opioid medicines in many cases and that some people are concerned that maybe that's contributing to an opioid addiction. Does that seem to be a valid concern? I mean, one exposure...
2: Right. So, you know, increasingly in the um, in the news, we are hearing about the opioid crisis. And, and it's a real thing. A lot of people are, are struggling with opioid addiction. And sometimes for people, their very first time to have an opioid is related to surgery. And so people who've never had opioids before undergo a surgery. And um, you need pain medicine for surgery. Like we talked about, the body has all of these physical responses to surgery and so the the pain medicine is something that's, you know, necessary for surgery um, so that they get their initial exposure during surgery and then typically the addiction process can come in or come into the, someone's life when they go home with a prescription pain medicine. So they may go home with a prescription pain medicine for two weeks or so, but maybe they don't use it all and, and it's sitting in the cabinet and then someone else who's struggling with an addiction comes and gets it from their cabinet. So um, anesthesia and the introduction of opioids into someone's system or, or you know the post-operative medicines that then stay on their shelf in their house can be a contributing factor to the opioid crisis in general and, and people's addiction. So I'm very cognizant of that. And I try to limit the amount of opioid um, narcotics that I give people and just give them the amount that they need. And then also surgeons are increasingly becoming aware that, um, that they can play a role in the opioid crisis by prescribing, you know, too much pain medicine, basically, for someone who's going home on surgery, and so they're increasingly reducing the amounts of opioids they're prescribing and encouraging patients to take things like Tylenol and Motrin, over-the-counter medicines to help them in their recovery at home. For someone who's maybe fearful of undergoing surgery and the role of opioids, um, I would say that you know, getting one dose in surgery is not going to trigger, um, you know, an addiction per se, but it it can be a part of the step that leads down that path and so i'm I'm something i'm aware of and try to definitely limit what i can in my giving opioids to people
0: Hmm.
1: as a physician i was uh, in medical school and actually almost got in significant trouble because during the anesthesia lecture the anesthetist said half of our job is putting people to sleep what is the other half and i said well waking them up and it turned out that wasn't the right answer. Uh, y'all do quite a lot of other things besides just anesthesia. What else would you describe as part of your role in the operating room?
2: Well, I would say your, your other half of your answer was very correct. You know, <laughs> it's a very important part um, of, of anesthesia is waking people up. But, you know, you were being comical, And I think the answer she was looking for is the other specialty areas that anesthesia is involved in. And so some of them are airway management We're considered, you know, experts in airway, largely because we intubate people several times a day. And so if an area in the hospital, such as the ER or ICU, needs help with a patient who they are considering might be a difficult intubation, or maybe they've tried to place a breathing tube on them and and had difficulty, they'll call anesthesia as backup for that. Other things we help out with in the hospital are, you know, placing central lines or arterial lines. So if the intensivist in the ICU or the ER physicians are overwhelmed and we are free to help out, we um, offer up service is for placing uh, vascular access lines, like central lines, which are basically like big IVs that are typically placed in the neck or upper extremities. And um, the arterial lines I mentioned are like a, an IV, but into an artery that would monitor blood pressure. Other areas that people may encounter anesthesia would be for obstetric services. So anyone who's having a baby has the option to use you know, anesthesia via an epidural for labor or if you're having a C-section, um, we typically do a spinal anesthesia for those C-sections. And then also an area of anesthesia specialty is, is becoming pain management. So outpatient pain management clinics, people can go there and get both oral medications to help with pain management as well as um, injections for different nerve blocks or steroid injections in the back. That's an increasing area of specialty for anesthesia to be involved in also.
0: And pain management in general, I, I know that in my nurse's background is so far back there that I don't remember them talking much about, other than using the word pain management as the nurse, you know, be careful and help them see other ways they can take care of their pain, but it's a whole field now of itself, and I think that's a response to trying to help people um, not get on the path of addiction to a medicine, but other therapies that can be used for pain. and so.
2: Right. Yes. And, and one of the areas that anesthesia is trained in is, like I mentioned, the nerve blocks. So mm-hmm. um, they can do, you know, injections of um, either a steroid or or a pain medication into areas that people are experiencing pain. And then the steroid injections are typically epidural steroid injections. So kind of in that same place where a laboring mom might receive a catheter for pain medication, they can inject a steroid into that area, which can reduce inflammation if someone is having a herniated disc or or back pain and that sort of thing.
0: Yeah. So the good news uh, for people listening is that if you've been suffering with pain for a long time and you just... Just really take advantage of, if you have the option to pain management, go to somewhere where they can help you come up with other therapies. Be courageous and take advantage of those because we don't want pain. We don't like to live with it. It's a normal response to things to our body. Pain Mm -hmm. is, I mean, my understanding of leprosy is you can't feel pain and then your, your body limbs start rotting off, but pain is a part of our life but we, we it's certainly a mercy to have anesthesia to help us and so in general just overall as you look at it did a safe thing for us
2: so definitely the, the safety of anesthesia has improved over the years currently it's it is something that's very safe like in the early days of anesthesia that we were talking about the open drop ether yeah. where there were no monitors um, that was a more dangerous time of anesthesia and so there are still you know people who are uh, afraid to undergo anesthesia today with all of our modern monitors that we have, we have monitors that monitor your oxygen level, and so we have a, you know, a sensor that we place on your finger that can monitor your oxygenation. The provider who's giving you anesthesia is always in the room with you; they don't leave the room, and so they're constantly monitoring your blood pressure, your heart rate, um, your oxygen level, and the anesthesia agents that we give, uh, we give in very controlled and effective doses to where you stay asleep. But we also have the knowledge and the training to resuscitate people if something, you know, does go wrong as far as blood loss during a surgery or um, an abnormal heart rhythm or something like that we have the knowledge and the training to handle those unexpected events for the most part I like to say a day a boring day of anesthesia is a, is a good day yeah, um, yeah. Where, where nothing eventful happens you know it's, a, it's yeah. a good boring day of anesthesia
0: I don't know if they I remember my mom having a surgery and they mentioned that and she latched onto it but the general anesthesia if you go undergo surgery with that that it can take up to a year to recover from having had that anesthesia effect is that accurate information
2: Um, So like I mentioned with the waking people up, you know, the anesthesia agents that we give are typically out of your system within a few hours. Oh yeah, that's right. So typically hour or two after surgery, people can leave the recovery area because their bodies physically from anesthesia have recovered. They've had the anesthesia leaving their system. And after that, the things that are on board are the pain medicines Mm -hmm. that you're continuing to receive in in the recovery areas. But as far as uh, memory and cognition, we do know that in the elderly, there is a higher incidence of what's termed a postoperative cognitive dysfunction. Mm. so that's something that can persist in the weeks and months after and someone who's elderly receives anesthesia. And so we're not fully aware of, of what goes into those mechanisms, um, but we are aware and it's documented that that can occur in the elderly. So we, what we do to, to mitigate or limit that risk is to give them as little anesthesia as we can. And ultimately, someone's undergoing anesthesia because they need surgery, right? You right. Know, yeah. Um, it, it's a so, bit weighing it out. Right. So. If someone, you know, doesn't need surgery, then they're not going to receive anesthesia. Mm-hmm. But if you have to have a surgery, then you want and and need anesthesia to go along with that. And so we do what we can to limit the amount of anesthesia we're giving someone who's elderly and
0: to limit that risk of cognitive dysfunction And they can make a choice about a quality of life. I think my mother-in-law had that carpal tunnel. She decided she wasn't going to have that surgery. She was going to just live with the difficulty with that because
2: right Shit. and that and that's kind of a risk benefit discussion that people undergo um, with with their surgeon or their physician and decide is this surgery worth worth the risk for mm-hmm. my life, yeah, yeah, and the pain I'm experiencing or the problems I'm experiencing.
1: Are there any unusual events uh, that occurred while you were doing anesthesia or your job, and would you like to share any of those with us
2: so the the boring days are the fun days, right, but yeah. <laughs> But exciting things can happen in anesthesia, so one of the common abnormal occurrences that can happen are during surgery, a laparoscopic surgery is where they use cameras to look inside the abdomen of someone. They insufflate or they blow air, typically it's actually carbon dioxide, into the abdomen, which blows it up sort of like a little balloon, and they have cameras that they're looking in to do their surgery. This is what goes on during a laparoscopic procedure, and um, one thing that can happen to the Body during this process, and it's it can happen in anyone, but typically in a in a younger person is a, what's called a vagal response or a bradycardic response mm-hmm. to the insufflation to the blowing of the air into the abdomen. And your uh, vagal nerve innervate multiple areas of the body, but one of them is, is the diaphragm, and the pressure on the on that diaphragm can cause the heart rate to lower or become bradycardic. Typically, when that happens, I notice the heart rate going from maybe sixty to fifty to forty. And at that point, I'm getting medications ready that can speed up the heart rate and I'm also communicating with a surgeon to let them know what the patient is doing Mm -hmm. Um, because ultimately one of the things that can help that if I can't get IV pain medications drawn up and administered fast enough is to release that air in the abdomen so I typically communicate something like the patient's heart rate's in the 40s and I'm administering glycopyrrolate I'm administering this and their blood pressure looks fine right now but just so you're in the loop if we need to release the air.
0: I wonder as I hear you say that I you know we do watch TV and sometimes Sometimes we watch medical shows and sometimes we just laugh because some things are really not exactly like they're portrayed in Hollywood about medicine. But do you say those things in the same kind of high pitched squealy voice as they do on the TV? Or is it more of a, we all calmly communicate to each other? Yeah.
2: So in anesthesia, because we deal with, you know, emergencies that can happen during surgery, most of us do a really good job of exhibiting outward calmness, even yeah. if your heart rate is racing on the yeah. inside. Because and, and
0: everybody's really working to get their job done. Yeah,
2: you're working to get your job done and you're just communicating the events, you know, to stay in open communication with the team in case something needs to change. But it was funny, a doctor this week was telling me about, he's a very calm, laid back um, anesthesiologist, was telling me about his experience where the patient was losing blood and volume and Uh he was communicating to the nurse, you know, I need to get some help in here and and he said it about that way two or three times to her and, and I think he said she thought he was joking and then finally he said, I need help over here. And she was like, oh, and got up into a flurry. So sometimes yeah. you do have to elevate your voice to, you're to get used your to point talking. across because yeah. you're yeah. trying to be calm. But um, yeah, for the most part, we try to stay calm uh, and, and communicate.
0: I like having these discussions about medical things because, of course, we're all familiar. That's been the daily bread and daily life for a lot in our family. But on the other side of it, as a nurse, I've seen the patients that, you know, they're just, as the word, freaking out or it's just really scary. Mm-hmm. And we, we tend to forget that because we don't walk into the hospital with that in our minds we're we're familiar it's like a a kid going to school with their mom who's a teacher and so for us we we can have a certain amount of relaxation and know that you know things are really in good hands and yes there's accidents there's issues but a lot of training and a lot of uh, we've had a lot of history that's brought us to better places and Mm -hmm. so I think that's something we can stand on and be at ease about but again the patients and the individuals on the other side it's it's Things are scary for them, and so I like talking about these things. Um, it's been a really fascinating discussion, and before we uh, shift gears into our final questions, we always ask our guests the, some final four questions. I'm going to give you the solution to the mystery I presented at the beginning. So I know it may be kind of hokey if you, the listeners are hoping to hear a really fancy answer, but I'll re- refresh our minds here. So that it was after a traumatic experience, a person named James opened his eyes in the hospital, did not know who he was or what his name was, People calling themselves his family stood around him. He did not recognize any of them. In fact, he'd never seen them before. Things were never the same for him, but he adjusted to his new life. He never remembered his life from before, never talked about it, what had happened. Remember, I said he wasn't in an accident. He didn't suffer an injury and did not have amnesia. Do you have a clue about
2: what might have happened? Well, initially when you said think outside the box, the first thing that came to mind was maybe it's not a human, maybe it's a monkey or something. (laughs) (laughs) Well,
0: and that's good to think outside the box. Too far out of the box. But actually, James was born. He was just born, so a traumatic experience, and this was him. So that's paradox, though, things that happen, a lot of unusual things, but we're here uh, standing in anesthesia from what happened in the past, the things that people tried. A lot of times when we're doing things in the STEM fields of science, technology, engineering, and math, some of the places that we get to today are based off of someone thought outside of the box before us and tried something and didn't go quite the way they thought, but then a new thing came about. And so that ties into what our podcast is about.
1: Well, you know, our podcast is called Paradoxify, and it basically is the idea that there's paradoxes if I will look at them and see them. And we're talking about things in the STEM field, science, technology, engineering, and math. We have a few questions we ask each guest regarding their faith, or the notion of faith itself can be considered what we think is a paradox, believing in something unseen. Tell me, are you a person of faith?
2: Yes, yeah, so yeah, I consider myself a person of faith.
1: And what do you find satisfying about your faith?
2: Well, one of the things I really enjoy in my faith is um, worship. I really enjoy singing songs and hymns um, in church with other bodies of believers and just um, raising our voices to praise God. To me, feels like a really strong connection to our Creator, to God, and um, just brings me joy and happiness and hope and I think just satisfies my soul.
1: Is there something you find unsatisfying about your faith?
2: You know, a little disclaimer, they did give me a little heads up about some of these questions. And this one I had to think about a little bit. Um, But one thing that I find maybe unsatisfying or or difficult about my faith is maybe the people on the outside who say that, you know, Christians are hypocritical or um, that don't, really live, you know, perfect lives. And, and maybe that can be a hindrance for people coming to church is like, well, all those people in those churches, they're all hypocrites. They don't live like they say they should and live like Christians. And, and that's something to me that can be frustrating or unsatisfying. But I think what it is, is it's part of the human condition Mm -hmm. in that we're all, we're all sinful. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and we're not perfect. And so, um, it's something that, you know, we all struggle with in faith and, and I think just acknowledging that and being aware of it and not um, pretending that you are perfect is an important thing to, to have in your faith and to have it in Christianity so that other people see that we're not all perfect and we're not living a life that's perfect, but we have sin in our lives and, and Jesus Christ died on the cross for those sins and he has redeemed us.
1: Is there an early memory or understanding regarding your faith or the practice of your faith that you'd like to share?
2: Um, So one of my fun early memories is um, I grew up in a Presbyterian church and we we went to Sunday school most Sundays. And what's fun is my my mom was my Sunday school teacher most of the time growing up some days and... And many days, it was just my mom and us kids, which were three of us. I have an older sister and a younger brother. And so um, there were just the three of us. And and some days, we would um, color and sing songs or read the Bible. And then some days, just for fun, if it was just the three of us or maybe one or two other kids, we'd walk across the street to Dairy Queen and put a sign on the door. We went to Dairy Queen. We'll be back. So we we had a lot of fun with my mom as our Sunday school teacher. That's
0: that's fun. And I love asking that question of our guests. There is a lot of... family and sometimes early things that happen that you know just part of the little pieces that are part of the faith story and I do remember too running around in the baptistry when we were supposed to be in a certain classroom nobody was seeing and we were hide and seek so faith is something that we build when we start young and we add to it so and it's like you said it's a good thing not to to pretend that we're perfect it's something that we're growing in
1: allison thank you very much for sharing with us your faith belief as well as your insight into anesthesia you work in such an awesome field and provide a true gift of mercy to those of us who need a procedures or surgeries and thanks to our listeners if you like what you're hearing leave us a review or suggestion for a topic of discussion in the stem fields science technology engineering and math Join us again soon as we talk about unexpected stories and visit our website at www.paradoxify.com. You can hear other recorded podcasts. You can also listen on Spotify or subscribe on Apple and most podcast platforms. Visit our webpage to find the links. Thanks for listening.